you're listening to the Telltale Channel. Don't forget to check me out on all social media, Patreon, Twitter, Teespring, and Etsy. All links can be found in the description or on my website, telltaleatheist.com. Welcome to Telltale Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Jehovah's Witnesses getting sued over historical sex abuse. We're going to be talking about Pennsylvania opening a grand jury investigation into them. We're also going to be talking about the Trump impeachment hearings and Mitt Romney's motivation for voting in the impeachment trial based on his Mormon faith. But before we get into all of that, why don't we give a listen to some voicemails and see what people had to say. Hey, Owen, uh, this is Alma. I have a question. Um... And when I left the Jehovah's Witness, uh, they used to say that the people who was born in 1914 was the generation that will not pass, meaning that uh, we will get the Armageddon before they will die. So if that is true, either those people are 160 years old or um, they change again to something else. Uh, I don't know if you know what is it now that they are saying about it. Okay, thank you. That is a good question. I appreciate you asking that question. So basically, uh, the question is, what's the deal with Jehovah's Witnesses, second generation teaching, and 1914 and all that other stuff? It's actually very confusing. So let's see if we can work our way through the belief system. Basically, Jehovah's Witnesses have this belief that in 1914, Jesus came back invisibly to earth. So a lot of Christians are waiting for Jesus to come back right now. They believe he came back invisibly and started the war, blah, 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 right? For many years, Jehovah's Witnesses released books that would say things like, millions now living will never die. They've been saying, we're in the end times and... Millions of people aren't going to ever die. They're just going to live straight through and make it into the paradise earth. So what happened? Do they still say that? That is a truth claim. What they're saying is either true or it's not true, right? Here's the basic theology behind it. There's this dream that Daniel had. I'm sorry. There's a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in the book of Daniel, right? And he calls Daniel in to interpret the dream for him because he didn't understand it and he knew Daniel was a godly man, blah, blah, blah. The dream was basically about Nebuchadnezzar um, wandering the fields like a beast for seven times. Now, Daniel gave an interpretation of that dream in the book of Daniel, but Jehovah's Witnesses give an extra reading on top of that into the prophecy saying that it means something beyond what Daniel said it meant in the book. So Jehovah's Witnesses try to figure out what a time is. Now, in Revelation, it says a time is a year, basically. So 365 days. So at this point, what we're working with is a verse from the book of Daniel and a verse from the book of Revelation. That's two different parts of the Bible, two completely separate, distinct parts of the Bible that Jehovah's Witnesses are kind of smashing together, right? They started counting this amount of time, seven times, whatever a time is, from the fall of Jerusalem. But nothing happened 
if you calculate, I think it says seven times, if you calculate that out, it's like 2,520 days or something like that, 365 days times seven times is 2,520. Nothing happened at that point in time. So they took another verse from another book in the Bible, Numbers, is talking about something completely unrelated, and it says a day for a year. So they started out with 2,520 days, and they take this random verse from this random book in the Bible, completely unconnected to anything else, and they, they calculated out 2,520 years. If all of this sounds confusing and nonsensical, that's because it is. It is confusing and nonsensical. There is no logic connected to this whatsoever. It's old Bible math made up in the 1800s by some group called the Millerites, and Jehovah's Witnesses latched onto it and absolutely loved it and tweaked it to fit what they wanted it to fit, and here we are today. So they start counting their 2,520 years from the fall of Jerusalem, which... At the time, when this was calculated back in the early 1900s, we thought was 607 BCE. That was what everybody thought. That's what archaeologists thought and everything else. Come to find out, that's not actually when Jerusalem fell. As if we have a good reason to start from that point anyways. As if we have a good reason to use the, the number 2,520 years after cramming three different verses from three different books of the Bible together and reading them side by side to basically make up an entirely new book of the Bible. Like, it's complete nonsense from beginning to end. But even within their confines of that nonsense, even within their lore, it still doesn't make sense. So Jerusalem did not fall in 607 BCE. It fell 20 years later. We know that as an objective fact because we have... Um, cuneiform tablets that prove that. And I've talked about this on my channel a billion times before. So go take a look. I actually did a collab with Digital Hammurabi and they talk all about it because they are both, both of the people who run that channel are scholars in the field for that time period in history. So it fell 20 years later in 586 slash 587 BCE. Not 607. But if you did start counting at 607, and you counted 2,520 years, which is that magic number that Jehovah's Witnesses pulled out of their asses, it puts you at 1914. So Jehovah's Witnesses made this big claim about the fact that there's going to be, you know, the end is going to come in 1914. So then they made this claim that anybody who was uh, alive, baptized, and anointed at that time in 1914... Anybody alive during that time who's anointed and baptized would never die, or that generation wouldn't die out. That's what they say. That generation who was anointed during 1914's events will not die out. The end, Armageddon, will come before the entire generation dies out. Well, guess what? It's 2020 now, and we're still here. That's 106 years later. You have to be a bare minimum of like eight years old to be baptized. Nobody I have ever heard of in my entire life has been quote-unquote anointed, as Jehovah's Witnesses call it, before, say, 25 years old. Let's just be super extra generous here, and we'll say 
There was somebody who was anointed and baptized in 1914 at 12 years old. That's not the case, but let's just say it, just to be extra generous. So if they were 12 years old in 1913, the year before, when they were anointed, that would mean that they were born in 1901. So that means it's been 119 years. Nobody is alive today who was 12 years old in 1914 and Jehovah's Witness. That's just factually not the case, right? So how do Jehovah's Witnesses explain this? Because they've been preaching that for like decades and decades, like a century now. Anybody who was alive during 1914 and anointed and baptized, they would not all die out. That entire generation wouldn't die out. So what they did was they came up with the second generation teaching, which is what the caller was talking about here. The second generation teaching basically says anybody who was alive during the lifetime of anybody who was alive during 1914's events still counts as that generation, pretty much. It's a really convoluted, complicated, confusing mess, but the long story short is Jehovah's Witnesses have about 25 more years before they have to modify their belief system again and change the second generation teaching again. Um, it, it basically is an end times prediction. So they've basically said the end is going to come before the 1914 generation dies out. Now, they have artificially extended that by saying anybody who is alive during the lifetimes of the people who were alive during 1914's events are part of that generation. But um, ultimately, you're just delaying the inevitable. You're going to have to change your belief system because it's just not going to happen. Armageddon is not coming, and it's not coming in the next 25 years. I know that that's kind of a conf confusing like explanation, but it's genuinely a confusing claim that they make. There's really not any clearer a way to explain it than that. Hey, my name's Matthew. I'm from Missouri, and I've actually had a recent encounter with Mormon missionaries. 16-year-old girls, and I was kind of wondering... Is that really how young they send them out on missions? So the question is, how young do they send them out? From my understanding, typically they send people out on missions when they turn 18, usually, but not always. I think after high school, you're kind of expected to go out on a mission. And I believe the mission is two years for men, 18 months for women. Um, it is optional for women, though. It is pretty much a requirement, though, for the men. It's kind of like with Jehovah's Witnesses, like lately they've been saying, the governing body's been saying, if you don't go out in service and knock on doors, we don't know what your life is like. We don't know if you have some kind of a disability. We don't know if there's some reason why you can't. Maybe you're sick. Maybe you don't feel good or whatever. But if you don't go out in service, knocking on doors when you could have, you're going to be blood guilty. Basically, you're going to be responsible for the deaths of those people if they don't make it. And that means you're not going to make it through Armageddon, pretty much. God's going to kill you in Armageddon. That's kind of the, the guilt trip that Mormons lay on the men. I've heard the Mormon leadership say fairly similar things about it. Uh, it's a calling, 
and men are required to. Now, they're not going to dig into your life and see what kind of extenuating circumstances you have. They're not going to drag you through the mud and destroy your life if you don't. But they lay the guilt tripping on pretty thick. So, yeah, between the ages of 18 and generally 22, I think, is when you go on missions. And I believe there is a limit on it. You can't go on a mission after 27, I think. So anyways, yeah, they do start them young. I, I would be surprised to hear that they were 16-year-old girls, though, because I don't think they usually send them that young. I think they have to be legal adults because typically, not always, but a lot of the time, they do send them out of the country. But anyway, I interesting voicemail. I appreciate, uh, I appreciate the message. Um, hey, Owen, my name's Sheridan. I'm from Texas. Um, I'm an atheist. I have been an atheist for about the past three years. I grew up Assembly of God, which um, you've talked about on your channel before, um, is just basically a very extreme branch of Pentecostalism. Um, and basically, I've kind of gone through the same thing that you have as far as being cut off from my family. Um, I don't speak to my mother's side of the family at all. Um, basically, they all look at me like, a harlot <laughs> so um it's been a really long time since i've spoken to my mom and i know that you've talked about that on your channel before and i was just wondering how do you deal with that because while i'm okay with it because i'm living the life that i feel like i was supposed to live it also does get to me occasionally and i wonder if you can relate to that and how you uh came to come to grips with that and deal with it that's a good question. How do you deal with that kind of thing? How do you deal with the fact that your entire family has shunned you, has completely cut off contact because you're not... It's not even that you're not living the way that they want you to live necessarily. It's like you're not living as an active Pentecostal, active Jehovah's Witness, active whatever. You're not devoting hours and hours of your life every single day to this group of people. It's really difficult to deal with the fact that I will almost certainly never have my mother in my life again. I, I cannot imagine having my mom in my life again. Now, I've been lucky enough that my entire family is out of the religion now, except for my mother. So I, I have regained contact with my brothers, my sister, my aunt, my cousins, and everybody else. But I'm still sans one mother. People say that I'm strong because I made it through. I, they say, I couldn't have made it through, but you did. You made it through. You're strong because of that. No. You could have made it through, too. Because there is no quit button. There is no, you know, exit button. There's no, I'm done. There's no giving up. You have to go through this whether you like it or not. I'm not strong because I made it through. I'm a, I am strong as a result of making it through. Making it through is the thing that strengthened me. I looked like a train wreck coming out the other side, but here I am. 
And the fact that you haven't talked to your mother in so long, years, just like I haven't talked to mine really in years, means that you're strong too. It's not easy to deal with, and sometimes you'll find yourself crying for no reason. But here we are. We're here, whether we like it or not. And honestly, my life is a lot better than it could have been if I were on the inside. If I were inside the religion, my life would be significantly worse than it is now, period. There is no question about that. It's miserable. You have to do so much to keep up appearances and to keep up with all of the work that they de facto assign to you. They want to consume your life as much as possible so you have less time to think about the fact that maybe they could be wrong. And that's why you find a lot of the time if people become kind of unplugged from the programming, like they stop going to meetings or going in service or they make a friend on the outside of the religion of my religion or something like that or my ex-religion, a lot of the time they will come to grips with reality and realize that this is complete BS. It's all made up. Now, in your case, you say you were Assembly of God. I, I do know about Assembly of God, and I know that that is very, very extreme also. Uh, some branches of Pentecostalism are more extreme than Jehovah's Witnesses. So I completely relate with the position that you're in right now, completely relate with what you've had to go through uh, regarding religion, and I do empathize 100%. Good luck with it. Like I said, you will look and feel like a train wreck coming out the other side, and you will find yourself crying randomly for no reason, but you will make it through. Hey, Owen. Uh, this is Beth in Alabama. I have an atheist parent question. I am the parent of two kids, one of which is four, male and in preschool. Um, the reason I mention his gender is because He's male, you ask him, he'll say, yeah, I'm a boy, but he likes wearing nail polish and can be a bit dramatic and really enjoys his art. And I've had an issue with his teacher this year who is religious because, of course, she is because it's Alabama. And she has some, shall we say, old school religious ideas about how boys are supposed to behave. And I'm really not sure how to go about addressing this. We've already had an issue with her praying in the classroom, which I stomped over real quick. Like, I know how to deal with that. I'm an FFRF member. Like, I know how to have that conversation. My question is, if you have any advice about the subtler gender role reinforcement, you know, things around that nature since your child's a little older and you're in a more you're, – you're in a red area like I am. And I was just wondering if you had – uh, any suggestions for dealing with that situation? Thanks. Bye. Thank you for the call. I appreciate that. I'm just looking at the transcript right now to get an idea. Just kind of scroll back in the call because I wanted to address something very specific here. Uh, your son, I think you said, your son really enjoys art and can be a bit dramatic and likes wearing nail polish and things like that. 
it's very possible that your child is trans. That's that is a possibility. But I honestly wouldn't assume that quite yet. A lot of kids of various different ages uh, and genders enjoy doing things like that. They like putting dresses on. They like wearing nail polish. Um, they like in uh, in this whole bit about being dramatic. That's not necessarily a female thing. I mean, men are dramatic too. Uh, so I wouldn't I wouldn't say that just because your kid is dramatic means that they're trans. That's a possibility. I mean, it, it is possible that they're trans. And if that's the case, of course, I would say you should support them 100% in their journey and experience in that. But I don't think that those things that you've listed are a harbinger necessarily of the idea that they might be trans. At any rate, you were saying you're in Alabama and you've already had to deal with prayers in school, things like that. That does not surprise me. I'm glad to see that you're a member of FFRF, Freedom From Religion Foundation. They've got lawyers that do an awful lot of good, making sure that teachers don't get away with leading the students in a prayer. As far as dealing with something like that, with, you know, the possibility that your kid may be trans, or is just experimenting with various different gender roles. I don't see why that's a bad thing. That shouldn't be considered a bad thing at all. And if a teacher is acting like a fool like that, I would bring it all the way to the Board of Education. Just do everything you can to drive the point home. Talk about it publicly, as publicly as you possibly can. You don't know my kid, and you have no place to claim you do or take any kind of authority in their life or discourage them from living the life that they want to live. I mean, drive that nail into the coffin. Sometimes you have to be a hammer. And in some cases, cases like prayer in schools, that's necessary, I think. Some cases like this one, your kid experimenting with different gender roles, sometimes you have to be a hammer. These people have been told 16 billion times no prayer in school you can you can sit there and pray as much as you want that's okay you can't lead students in prayer that is not okay they know this stuff they've been told before you don't get involved in this kid's gender roles you don't you, why is it their place at all why are they spouting off at the mouth and, and acting like there's an issue if a kid wants to try on a dress or wear nail polish or something. Why is that their business at all? They're there to teach the kid, to educate the kid. Why are they getting involved in this at all? It does not make any sense to me. So sometimes you got to be a hammer. I don't say that very often, but in cases like this and in cases like prayer in schools and things like that, I would say you've got to be a hammer. Hi, Owen. This is Frank in Charlotte, North Carolina. After I watched the video about Tony Morris talking about college, it got me thinking, do you think that the people on the, the guys on the uh, governing body, they know that it's all fake? It just everything they do to keep people in just makes me think that they know that it's all a sham. Thanks. Does the governing body know that it's fake? Do, do the Jehovah's Witnesses leadership, does the Mormon leadership know they're full of it? Or did they buy into their own propaganda? Does Teal Swan know she's full of it? Does, do the leaders of spirit science, Jordan whatever, 
Duke Nicks or something. Does he know that he's full of it, or or does he th- know that he's just making all this up on the spot and he's just using it to get more money? It's really an impossible question to answer without being in someone else's head. And in the end, it doesn't matter too much because the effect is the same. The things that they're doing are harmful to society, objectively harmful to society. We know that this stuff is made up. For example, with Teal Swan, these vibration things that she's got going on. She's got these meditations that if you listen to them, then your soul's vibration will change to align with money. So if you listen to them, then you'll make money or money will be attracted to you or whatever other nonsense. We know that's just false. There is no soul. There is no vibration of the soul at the very least. And the things that that Teal Swan, that the governing body of Jehovah's Witnesses, that Mormonism leadership, the things that they encourage people to do are bad for them. I talked about this on the line with Mr. Atheist recently. It doesn't matter too much if what comes out the other side of cult indoctrination is good or bad, really. I think that we should discourage cult indoctrination, period. So there are some cults and cult-like mindsets that produce helpful and useful results in people. So I've known drug addicts who joined Jehovah's Witnesses and over time became productive members of society, honest as they come, hard workers. Does that justify brainwashing somebody? If you have to accomplish that goal, does the means justify the ends? Yes, Jehovah's Witnesses are well known for being honest and trustworthy and hard workers and nice. Does that justify the bad stuff that people did to get them to that point? Like with the military, we need the military. That's just an objective fact. We need it. We need the military in the U.S. If we didn't have a military, like any military at all, to protect us, we would be invaded and killed. Does that justify brainwashing somebody? The answer is no. We need to find ways to reach our goals that are not destructive. To answer the question, does the governing body of Jehovah's Witnesses know that what they're doing is BS or what they're preaching is BS? The answer is it doesn't matter if they do. But if you want a a real answer to your question, Ray Franz was a governing body member for a long time. And he ended up leaving the religion, and he was asked that question. Do you think that the governing body members believe what they're saying? And his answer was basically, there may be the odd person in the religion, in the leadership of the religion, that knows what they're doing is scamming people. But he believed that the vast majority of the leadership in Jehovah's Witnesses were true believers. I mean, when you think about it, in most cases with the governing body members, they were raised in the religion too. Not all of them. Toni Morris was not raised in the religion, from my understanding. But most of them were. The victims become the victimizers in this case. They believe it hook, line, and sinker, I think, most, in most cases. And I think that's true of Mormonism too, and, and most religions. 
as far as Scientology goes, I don't... I've talked to ex-Scientologists, lots of them, some of whom were really, really high up in the group. They seem to be of the opinion that the leader of Scientology, David Miscavige, is not a true believer and knows he's scamming people. In cases where it's hard to tell, don't attribute malice to that which could be attributed to stupidity, or whatever the saying is. I think Jehovah's Witnesses, for the most part, believe their own propaganda. I think David Miscavige of Scientology is an evil piece of shit and knows what he's doing. So, there's your answer. Hey, Owen, this is Jeremy. And, uh, just calling in to wonder, is it bad or dumb to want to believe in a god or religion for your own happiness, even though you don't feel it's necessarily true? It's just something I've been thinking about a lot and figured you could give a little more insight into it. Thanks. That's an interesting question. So basically, to summarize the question, is it okay to wonder if God is real or to believe God is real for your happiness, even though you know it's not necessarily true? That's actually a contradiction. Either you believe that God is true or you don't believe that God is true. That one of the two. You can't both believe and not believe at the same time, just based on the laws of logic. From what you're saying here, it kind of sounds to me like you probably do believe, but, you know, I'm not in your head. I, I have no idea. Generally, I say believing something that is false or not true is undesirable and will color your worldview. So I want to believe as few untrue things as possible and as many true things as possible. We have a lot of delusions in our lives, all of us do, that we cling to to add to our personal happiness. I would rather not connect myself to a completely unrealistic delusion in this case the god belief when there's no reason to it it may make me happier that's very true i may be happier to believe in a god i may be happier to know that i'm not gonna be gone forever when i die i just can't i i can't it's not a choice it's a conclusion that I've reached. It's completely out of my control whether I believe this or not. I can't pick one of the two. I can't pick to believe it. There's my answer to your question. I know it's probably uh, convoluted and, and not exactly the answer you were looking for, but that's my take on it at any rate. When we come back, we're going to be taking a look at Jehovah's Witnesses being sued over historical sex abuse. So give us 30 seconds and we'll be back. You're listening to the Telltale Channel. Don't forget to check me out on all social media, Patreon, Twitter, Teespring, and Etsy. All links can be found in the description or on my website, telltaleatheist.com. The first article I wanted to take a look at is by the BBC and actually just came out. 
The title of the article is Jehovah's Witnesses Sued Over Historical Sex Abuse. Demonetized. <laughs> um, there's a huge swell of Jehovah's Witness stuff going on at this immediate moment. So let's give this article a read. This is by Claire Jones. And again, it's by the BBC. The BBC is a... Uh, what would you call it? It's a, a UK news organization, I guess you could say. I believe it's UK. It's not a US news organization at the very least. So the fact that this is getting international coverage is actually a really, really good sign. Anyway, it's by Claire Jones, released February 4th, 2020. So about a week ago uh, at the moment, this is airing. Let's give this a read and see what it has to say. At least 20 former Jehovah's Witnesses are suing the group over historical sexual abuse they say they suffered. The group has a policy of not punishing alleged child sex abuse unless a second person alongside the accuser has witnessed it or an abuser confesses. This is going back to the two-witness rule, which I'll explain in a minute if this doesn't get into it. It says its elders comply with child abuse reporting laws even if there's only one witness, though and always tell police if a child is in danger. But one former elder said it had been failing to involve the authorities. John Viney, who says he was abused between the ages of 9 and 13 by a distant family member who is an active Jehovah's Witness, added children were still being abused and the religious organization was inadvertently protecting their abusers. Let me tell you guys how this works, okay? So up here in the article it says, the group has a policy of not punishing alleged child sex abuse unless a second person alongside the accuser has witnessed it or an abuser confesses. This is how it works. What they're talking about here is something called the two-witness rule. It's intended for financial transactions, contract signings, things like that. If you make an agreement with somebody or something in the Old Testament, you know, I'm sorry, in the New Testament, where you, know, you sell a mule to somebody or something like that, someone else has to be present for that transaction to be valid, basically. There has to be a second, there have to be two witnesses to the transaction who were there and aware of what was happening and can testify to it. So Jehovah's Witnesses picked up this whole um, two-witness rule that really applied to like contract signing and things like that, and they applied it to more than just civil cases, and they applied it to criminal cases. So ultimately, what Jehovah's Witnesses desire is to set up their own government. That's, the, that's what they want in the end. And they run the religion like their own government. They have investigators. I mean, the elders will go out and investigate things. If somebody claims that you have a girlfriend or you're smoking cigarettes or something, they will get with you. They will follow you. They will talk to you. They'll call you in and they'll pray. And Jehovah will give them a message, whether or not to believe you, things like that. It's a whole thing. They're basically trying to run their own government. So they aren't just applying the two-witness rule as read in the Bible to civil cases like it was supposed to be in the Bible. They're applying it to everything that the elders do. So if there are not two witnesses to some event, crime, contract signing, whatever, it basically didn't happen. They will write it down, they'll keep tabs on it, they'll watch, but they have been told not to report it to the police, they have been told uh, not to report it to anybody, except maybe 
the governing body unless there are two witnesses. So two witnesses means if somebody is being sexually abused, there has to be either a second victim to come forward and say, hey, this person did this to me, or there has to be a witness to the event, like somebody had to walk in and see it. So now the victim can report it and the witness can report it. So for years, decades even, since Jehovah's Witnesses had this rule, the two witness rule, what people would do is they would walk into a kingdom hall, they would offend, they would do something criminal. It would get reported or it would come out. The elders would know about it. They'd make a note of it. They would send that note to the governing body. Governing body would put that name in a database and move on with their lives. And that person would move to the next congregation move to another congregation. And since there weren't two victims or two witnesses, nobody can say a word about it. It's against the rules for the elders to report it to the police or, or anybody else without having two witnesses. So this person would offend, move to another congregation, and re-offend and nothing would happen to them. They'd move to a third congregation, reoffend, a fourth congregation, reoffend. This would happen for decades. There were people out there who had been doing this for decades. And in a little bit, we're going to hopefully be talking about this. There is a database that Jehovah's Witnesses have that's been confirmed that is basically a list of sex offenders that have never been reported to the police and they refuse to turn it over. So, anyway, let's that's that that is a description of the two witness rule. Let's continue reading this article and see what else it says. The way that Jehovah's Witnesses handle matters within the congregation. It's a closed shop, he told the BBC's Victoria Derbyshire program. I know for a fact now that there are parents that haven't done anything about the abuse of their children by others because they don't want to bring reproach on Jehovah's name. Oh my God, I heard that phrase constantly when I was little. Don't bring reproach on Jehovah's name. Mr. Viney's own daughter, Karen, was abused as a child and has since spoken out about it publicly. But when she left the organization, Mr. Viney disowned her, something he has regretted ever since. Yeah, I, I honestly can't blame him for doing that because he was brain, brainwashed just like the rest of us were. I, I disowned my brother. I shunned my brother when I was in the religion. I know better now. And Mr. Viney knows better now too. So I can't, I can't blame myself for shunning my brother when I was brainwashed. And I can't blame Mr. Viney for it either when he was brainwashed. The important part is that he's not doing it anymore. That's what matters. When I was an elder and a dad, I put being an elder absolutely first, he said. And that was a mistake. Mr. Viney said he had eventually reported his own abuser to the police in 2019 after years of being too ashamed only to be told the man had gone on to abuse other children and died in prison. At least the guy got caught. At least he got caught. That's the important part, you know? He died in prison. You can heal now as best you can. What would have happened if I had the courage and common sense to come forward at the time? It's not about common sense. Jehovah's Witnesses try to shut that down as best they can. 
I've talked about this before, but okay, this is something called the influence continuum. I have talked about the influence continuum many times before, but Jehovah's Witnesses are obsessed with destructive and unhealthy influence. So this is really what makes the difference between a destructive cult and a religion, ultimately, in, in a lot of ways. Are they encouraging you to rely on doctrine for your moral compass or your conscience for your moral compass? Are they encouraging free will and critical thinking or dependency and obedience? Jehovah's Witnesses destructively influence their members. It's not about common sense, as he says here. Um, saying that if I had the courage and common sense to come forward at the time, saying that is giving yourself less credit than you deserve. Jehovah's Witnesses do everything they can to shut that down in people, and you were brainwashed just like I was brainwashed. But we're out now, and we're free thinkers now, and we can do the right thing now. Thomas Beale, a solicitor representing some of the former members, said they had decided to seek compensation after asking the group for an apology, only to find it denying what has happened or refusing to engage. Those taking the legal action say the organization is vicariously liable for the abuse they say they suffered. Some claim it was negligent. It was most definitely negligence. They have a list of abusers and they are refusing to turn it over. They have had this list of abusers uh, racking up for decades and decades, and they're not turning it over. Look, abuse like this happens in society, all parts of society. That's true. It's not just a Jehovah's Witness problem. It's not just a Catholic Church problem. It's not just a Mormon problem. This happens everywhere, okay? It's not just a cult problem. It's an everything problem. The issue is, how do those groups handle it when it happens? The Catholic Church picked up these, uh, these preachers, moved them from parish to parish to protect them from legal consequences, and put other people in harm's way as a result. Jehovah's Witnesses refused to report this stuff to the police and to this day are still refusing to turn the database over. It's an embarrassment for them. I don't like how they're handling it. You know what happens if I hear about something like that in my life? I report it to the police. It's not even a question. That's what 99.9% .9 of the people watching this would probably do because it's the right thing to do. Just report it to the police. Why is that so difficult? Instead, you've got these religious groups like Jehovah's Witnesses and like Catholics covering it up. Why? I don't get what, like, what the mindset is of the leadership that they would give that order. It's absolutely mind-blowing to me. One woman, Emma, not her real name, said after she'd been abused, she'd been visited by elders who had repeated scripture about why we should keep it in-house not follow the laws of the land. Oh, that's fascinating. Because Jehovah's Witnesses are always talking about following the laws of the land. Pay back Caesar's things to Caesar, blah, blah, blah. Up until it's inconvenient for them. Seriously, like, abuse like this is... is it, it happens in society. This happens. I'm not going to demonize Jehovah's Witnesses for having this take place in their religion. Because this does happen in society. 
I'm going to demonize Jehovah's Witnesses for what they do when they find out about it. That is a problem. That is a problem for me. She had been asked to recount explicit details with the elders glaring at me. They're not therapists. They're random, normal people. They should not be dealing with this. They're not therapists. They're not investigators. Why are they doing this? Give the name to the police and move on with your life. Several former members have also told BBC News they were made to discuss their allegations with elders at a judicial committee while their alleged abuser sat next to them. Yeah, I've heard of that too. In fact, there was one case where this kid, uh, I believe he was like 12 when the abuse started happening. There was basically a ministerial servant who, uh, who's, I guess like a deacon kind of. A ministerial servant took this kid under his wing when he turned 12, which I've had elders take me under their wing and take me out into service and try to teach me, get me baptized, and all that other good junk, right? That, that's not uncommon. But when this ministerial servant took this 12-year-old under his wing, he started molesting the kid. It continued on for four years. The kid got baptized. He was 16 years old now, and he was baptized. And guess what happened? Jehovah's Witnesses, when, when he told the elders what had happened to him as a kid, the elders disfellowshipped him for homosexual activity. Disfellowshipped the kid, the victim, for homosexual activity. How wrong is that? That is absolutely disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. This kid loses everything. Loses his friends and his family Everything has the rug pulled right out from under him for being a victim of somebody else's sick, twisted life. It's absolutely wrong, and I can't stand it. So that's what we're dealing with with Jehovah's Witnesses at the moment. I'm really, really glad to see Jehovah's Witnesses being covered on the BBC and other outlets right now. They're getting an awful lot of coverage at this moment, and it's a good sign. Really glad to see it. Give us about 30 seconds. When we come back, we're going to be discussing Pennsylvania opening a grand jury investigation into Jehovah's Witnesses' cover-up of child sex abuse, a.k.a. CSA, as people have been calling it. So give us 30 seconds, and we will be right back. You're listening to the Telltale Channel. Don't forget to check me out on all social media, Patreon, Twitter, Teespring, and Etsy. All links can be found in the description or on my website, telltaleatheist.com. So the next article I wanted to take a look at, this one is by revealnews.org, and it's by Trey Bundy. Pennsylvania opens grand jury investigation into Jehovah's Witnesses' cover-up of child sex abuse. I actually know Trey Bundy. He's been working on Jehovah's Witnesses as a reporter for a very long time, decades, since before I was even out of the religion. So he's fighting the good fight. Let's read his article and see what it has to say. For decades, leaders of the Jehovah's Witnesses religion have kept allegations of child sexual abuse in their congregations secret from police as a matter of policy. They've maintained an internal database containing the names of alleged abusers in their U.S. congregations, but repeatedly have violated court orders to, ha to hand it over. 
Still, they've avoided reckoning with law enforcement agencies until now. The Pennsylvania Attorney General's office has opened a grand jury investigation into how Jehovah's Witnesses leaders handle allegations of child sex abuse, according to three people who have been called to testify in closed-door hearings. That's good news. Mark O'Donnell, who I also know, uh, really, really nice dude. He used to go by um, John Redwood. He used to go by John Redwood. He was friends with Lloyd Evans, still is, as far as I know, and... Uh, and I met him actually through Lloyd Evans. I also met him through Stephen Hassan, interestingly enough. They know each other. Anyway, so Mark O'Donnell, a former Jehovah's Witness, told Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting that Pennsylvania investigators visited his home in Baltimore in June and interviewed him for three hours. O'Donnell, 52, was a Jehovah's Witness for 30 years. He left in 2014 after learning about CSA cases, uh, child abuse cases, locally and elsewhere, that were covered up by the organization. Since then, he has become a vocal critic of the Watchtower, the, wa the religion's parent organization, actually the Watchtower Society, traveling around the country to observe civil court cases against the organization and publishing stories online. Mostly on jwsurvey.org, I think, which is run by Lloyd Evans, the John Cedars YouTube channel. As a result, O'Donnell has become a popular recipient of leaked information from inside the Watchtower and local congregations, much of it pertaining to CSA. Good news, yeah. I actually knew that he was the recipient of a lot of leaked information. They asked a lot of questions about my upbringing and documents I'd received, O'Donnell said. The investigators' sites were aimed across state lines in New York, he said, the home of the religion's world headquarters. They made it clear that they wanted to go to the top of the organization, O'Donnell said, that even if an organization is headquartered in another state or country, they were not going to let it be a barrier to their investigation. Good news. The investigators asked him to testify in front of the grand jury, which he did for several hours in August and December. They wanted to understand how the, the CSA policies operate, he said, how the governing body operates. This is the guy to talk to. Mark O'Donnell knows an awful lot about everything, you know, connected to this religion. He's been an ex-Jehovah's Witness activist for a very, very long time. The governing body of Jehovah's Witnesses, eight men who followers believe are the earthly channel for the voice of God, are the spiritual leaders of the religion, like the Pope is to the Catholic Church. Yeah, I would say that's, that's pretty accurate. That's pretty similar. Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro's office declined to comment on the investigation or confirm whether one was underway. The prosecutors have the power to pursue criminal charges, or they simply could release the findings of their inquiry publicly, as this same team of investigators did in 2018 for their bombshell investigation into systemic sexual abuse issues in six of Pennsylvania's eight Catholic dioceses. It's way long past time for this to happen to the Watchtower Society. Let's continue reading. That report renewed focus on the Catholic Church's practices, revealing that 301 priests had been accused of sexually abusing more than a thousand kids across the six dioceses and were protected from exposure by church leaders. Since the findings were released, the U.S. Department of Justice has served subpoenas on seven Catholic dioceses in Pennsylvania, and attorneys general in more than a dozen other states have opened their own investigations. I remember when that happened, actually. I think I covered it on the podcast when it took place. 
Considering the explosive findings of the Catholic Church investigation, attorneys and child welfare advocates are watching the Jehovah's Witnesses inquiry closely. With the grand jury, the real value in my the real value in my view is you see a real pattern across the organization. They paint a picture of how the organization operates, said Marcy Hamilton, CEO of Child USA, a think tank for child abuse prevention. They could also decide to file criminal charges against religious leaders, but we haven't seen a lot of that. I hope they do, honestly. There are a few things that we can do with Jehovah's Witnesses, regarding Jehovah's Witnesses. It's complicated to know how we can solve this problem, but right now Jehovah's Witnesses are surviving the way that they're surviving, like as a religion, because of all the money they have. So Jehovah's Witnesses, the way they make money really is they have this whole member base that's willing to do anything for the organization. So what they do is they will get land donated or they will buy land for cheap. And they'll get their membership, they'll get their congregations to build new kingdom halls at cost. So they'll do what's called a quick build. They'll have 100, 200 people come in one weekend and just throw a kingdom hall up in like a few days time. Um, of course, you know, you got to wait for the paint to dry and things like that. So it is a process that takes a couple of weeks ultimately by the end of it. But all of that labor is free. All they're really paying for the Watchtower Society is sometimes the land and sometimes the building materials. On occasion, they'll get it donated to them or they'll have wealthy Jehovah's Witnesses in the congregation who will pay for the building materials themselves. Either way, even in a worst-case type of scenario, all they're paying for is the building materials and the land. They're not paying for the labor. The labor is free. And that's really kind of the expensive part of a building, is the labor that it takes to, to put it up. So they will have a Kingdom Hall or a headquarters or something. We'll just start with Kingdom Hall. They'll have a Kingdom Hall constructed for, say, $30,000 in building materials and property ownership and everything. And they can then sell that building. It is worth $200,000, $250,000, $300,000. It's worth a lot of money because building something like that costs that much just in labor sometimes. So what they've been doing is they've been getting Jehovah's Witnesses congregations to sometimes build new kingdom halls, brand new, and they will do what's called overbook them. Airlines do this too, where you know, you've got 100 seats available. So what the airline will do is they know 20% of the people aren't going to show up, so they will sell uh, 120 seats, and then when, you know, flight time comes, only 100 people show up. That's how you get fully booked uh, airlines. Like, that's how you get fully booked airplanes with no extra seats available. And on occasion, they kind of mess up and they sell one too many and they got to buy the ticket back from somebody, put them on the next flight, right? I mean, you guys have heard of this before. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses have been doing with the Kingdom Halls, basically. So that we've got Kingdom Halls that are capable of holding 200 people, right? 
and there are only 150 people in the congregation. So what they'll do is they'll get people from the East congregation and the West congregation, and they will combine the kingdom halls. They'll have, uh, you know, meetings for the East kingdom hall on Sunday morning and Wednesday night. And for the West one, they'll have Sunday night and Thursday night. So they're getting as much use out of this one building as possible. And then they'll sell the old one that's, not, that's no longer being used. They did the exact same thing with their headquarters recently. They've, had, they've owned this headquarters for like decades and decades and decades. Very, very long time. And they had everybody in their headquarters build a brand new headquarters in Warwick. And then they sold their old one off for like $1.5 billion or something like that. So when they run out of money, because their membership base is not very rich, you know, naturally, they're not supposed to be going to college or anything like that. What they'll do is they will run these schemes, basically combining kingdom halls, having them build new ones, selling off the old ones, selling off the headquarters and building new ones, things like that. That's kind of how it operates. So what we have to do, I believe, to try to pretty much destroy this organization is cut off their money. Find some way to cut off their money. Find them out of existence. Every human rights violation, they get fined. $10 per violation. That's really, I think, the only way to do it. Take away their tax-exempt status and fine them for human rights violations. I don't know that we're going to see that anytime soon, but the fact that this stuff is getting so much news coverage right now, the fact that Jehovah's Witnesses are getting news coverage right now, and it's not about how poorly Russia is treating them, is a good sign. We'll be right back. And when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, Mitt Romney and his reason for voting against Trump in the impeachment trial. So give us 30 seconds. We will be right back. You're listening to the Telltale Channel. Don't forget to check me out on all social media, Patreon, Twitter, Teespring, and Etsy. All links can be found in the description or on my website, telltaleatheist.com. So the next article I wanted to take a look at is entitled Mitt Romney's Mormon Faith Motivated Him to Vote for Trump's Removal from Office. So let's read the article and see what it has to say. This is on the Washington Post and it's by Julie Zausmer, released February 5th. So just to catch everybody up real quick, uh, some of you may be aware, some may not be. Basically, Donald Trump's impeachment trial, I've been kind of covering it. Uh, He was acquitted. That was expected because uh, it's a Republican Senate. So everybody kind of expected that to happen. In fact, we all knew it was going to happen because you, you have to have a supermajority to actually remove Donald Trump from office. Supermajority means we had to have at least uh, 66% of the vote. So 67 senators, I believe, had to vote to remove Trump from office for it to actually happen. And 
there were 51 Republicans, I believe, in the Senate. So pretty much we had to have every single Democrat, every single independent, and an additional, uh, what was it, 17 Republican senators to actually get him removed. It was not happening. It was not going to happen. But we did have one Republican senator break ranks and vote to remove Donald Trump from office, even though he was officially acquitted. It was an interesting event. So let's read this article and see what it has to say. As Senator Mitt Romney delivered a history-making speech on the Senate floor on Wednesday afternoon, becoming the first U.S. Senator to ever vote to remove from office a president of his own party, Romney did not express his greatest emotion when he called the actions of President Trump grievously wrong. He was most emotional when he talked about God. Okay, here we go. As a Senator juror, I swore an oath before God to exercise impartial justice. I am profoundly religious. My faith is at the heart of who I am, Romney said at the start of his speech. Clearly moved, he paused for several long moments and took a breath before continuing. I take an oath before God as enormously consequential. Romney is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Oh my God, can they please just shorten that name? They're making it longer. Every time I see that name anywhere, it's longer than it was before. Okay, let's continue reading after that bitch fest. Sorry. Romney's member of the church, the LDS church, we'll say that. Member of the LDS church, the denomination colloquially known as Mormonism. As he explained his vote, he turned to Mormon tradition. On Fox News, anchor Chris Wallace said to Romney, Donald Trump will never forgive you for this. Romney's response, do what's right, let the consequence follow. Yeah, I agree. Do what's right and let the consequence follow, 100%. Those words come from a hymn that is used in the Mormon church. Okay, of course it's from a hymn. From the Mormon church. Written by an anonymous author in 1857, Do What is Right, exhorts worshipers, angels above us are silent notes taking of every action, then do what is right. I don't know what that means. It's kind of cryptic. He told the Atlantic he had his father's favorite verse from Mormon scripture in mind throughout the deliberative trial process. Search diligently, pray always, and be believing, and all things shall work together for your good. Why is it written like it's like in old English almost, like why are all of these hymns, why is the Book of Mormon written like it's way older than it actually is? It's kind of strange. Mormons are traditionally a conservative-leaning group that have been wary of Trump throughout his presidency. While 80% of Mormons voted for George W. Bush in 2004, and 78% voted for Romney when he ran against Barack Obama in 2012, just 61% voted for Trump in 2016. Honestly, I'm kind of surprised that only 78% voted for Romney. And I'm also surprised that 80% of Mormons voted for George W. Bush. Uh, kind of surprised by that. Anyway, Mormons were the only religious group to show a significant change in their voting pattern in 2016 compared with prior elections. White evangelicals who tend to agree with Mormons on many conservative causes supported Trump even more strongly than they had prior Republican nominees. 81% picked Trump. The Pew Research Center said in March 2019 that Trump's approval rating among Mormons stood at 52%, far higher than his approval 
among liberal-leaning religious groups such as Jews, 24%, and black Protestants, 12%, but far lower than the 69% approval he enjoys among white evangelicals who are among his most fervent supporters. It's good that Romney broke rank. I'm glad to see that, but ultimately is completely inconsequential, and it was completely for the wrong reasons. Why is he bringing God into this at all? The fact that a senator is bringing God into his decision-making process is kind of disturbing to me, to be completely honest with you. Um, there is a separation of church and state, and they should really be working toward goals completely separate from God. Like, if he's bringing God into politics, it's concerning. The level of power that he has is concerning to me. What I was reading just now basically said, the Pew Research Center said in March 2019 that Trump's approval rating among Mormons stood at 52%, far higher than his approval among liberal-leaning religious groups. I talked about this on another podcast a while back, but... Trump actually lost evangelical support, like a lot of it. There is, a, there is a famously evangelical blog or news website, basically, that came out against Trump fairly recently, like in the past few months, and said, if you're a Christian, you cannot stand behind somebody who is so morally bankrupt all of the affairs and all of the everything, all of the marriages, how can you claim to be for quote-unquote Christian values and also support somebody who is so completely the polar opposite to Christian values or claimed Christian values? So this Christian, this evangelical uh, news website came out against Trump and it was such a big deal at the time that Trump has poured his effort into regaining the evangelical vote. I don't know how that's working out for him. I haven't really seen polls. And honestly, polls don't tell us as much as we would like them to tell us. Polls can be incorrect. They're all we've got, so we have to follow them sometimes. But I'm just going to be interested to see what happens when the general election rolls around and, and how many evangelicals actually do vote for Trump. It, it'll be interesting to see either way. Leah Bryant, what's the Smurf story and the Jehovah's Witnesses I keep hearing of? When I was little, they didn't have as much of a problem with Smurfs, or my parents didn't. So I was allowed to watch Smurfs, but it was truly kind of a boring-as-sin TV show to me. Like, it was awfully boring. So I didn't really watch it a lot, but I was allowed to. There's an entire generation of Jehovah's Witnesses who are not allowed to watch Smurfs. And the reason is because there is a Smurf story that kind of circulates around Jehovah's Witness culture. It's not an official story. It's not something that you'll hear talked about from the podium. But for the most part, this, you know, it, it, it seriously circulates Jehovah's Witness culture. There's this, uh, God, I'm looking for urban legend. That's the word. There's this urban legend that changes from congregation to congregation. Everybody kind of has a different version of the Smurf story. When it was told to me when I was little, I was told that there was a girl at the meeting that had a Smurf doll in her bag 
and the Smurf doll couldn't deal with, uh, Satan was in the Smurf doll, and it couldn't deal with Jehovah's light. So it came to life, this Smurf doll, climbed out of the bag, walked out the back of the kingdom hall, down the aisle, and out the door, swearing the entire way, like, fuck this shit, basically, and was never seen again. That's the Smurf story I was told. Some people were told she was reading a Smurf book, and there was a Smurf on the page that literally came off of the page and walked down the hall and was never seen again. Uh, it, like I said, it changes from Kingdom Hall to Kingdom Hall, but that's the story, and it was used to scare the shit out of an entire generation of Jehovah's Witnesses. How they got anybody to believe this is beyond me. But they've never talked about this from the podium, obviously. The Smurf story is completely fabricated. But they have talked about how Smurfs is bad, generally. So I kind of researched it, wondering how it came to be that this story circulated the religion so thoroughly. And from my understanding, one of the governing body members used to tell stories at Bethel, and somebody told them a story, told them this story, the Smurf story, and then they told the new recruits the story, and that's how it became a part of the, the urban legend culture, basically, of Jehovah's Witnesses. So that's the Smurf story, if you were wondering. It's bizarre. Happy to catch you live for a few minutes. Thank you, Conundrum44, for the super chat. I really appreciate that. Omega Riley, $2. Howdy tell. Thank you, Omega Riley. Glad to see you here. That's awesome. Usually I'm on Discord doing it simultaneously, but this is a weird day because I had a live stream I was doing last night with Mr. Atheist. So anyway, and then Adrian, $10. Hey, dude, good to see you. Thank you for the super chat. Glad to see you here. Thank you so much for being here and listening to me ramble and everything. That's where I'm going to end it for today. Thank you guys for coming, and I will talk to you next week. If you like what I do and you want to make sure I can continue to do it, you can support me in a few ways. First, you can support me on Patreon. That's probably the best way. But if you want to get something back for your support, you can check out my Teespring. I sell all kinds of shirts and stickers and stuff on there. Second, you can support me by checking out my Etsy store. I sell 3D printed stands for every system from the original Nintendo to the Xbox One. And finally, if you want to support me in other ways, you can check me out on my other channels. I have the podcast channel, which is where I talk about whatever's on my mind. Politics, social issues, whatever. You can also find it everywhere podcasts can be found. Or you can check out the videos on my main channel where I focus on destructive cults. As it is with most channels these days, I rely on the support of viewers like you to keep my channel alive, so sharing my work is extremely helpful. Anyways, check me out in all those places if you haven't already. Thanks for listening, guys.